0: Yes, I brought the secrets back with me, and here they are! The big secret is, of course, oil, which has brought a better life to all the people in the USA. But the key to making oil
1: work for everybody is competition. I try to get away from from what we can call sort of historical chauvinism. We are not necessarily better because this is the 21st century and and, and that was the 1950s. Our job is to understand the past as it was.
2: My guest today knows a thing or two about spinning yarns. He's written books about extraterrestrials and science fiction. He also knows a lot about the challenges of teaching modern American history to undergrads. I first got interested in talking to Aaron Gullius when I found out about his latest book, Teaching History with Newsreels and Public Service Shorts. Aaron has tapped into this treasure trove of free short films, and there are thousands of them. You've got to see some of them, but before you do, have a listen to Aaron Gullius as your expert guide. This was lots of fun. I hope you enjoy it too.
1: The best short films for lifelong learning, recommended by teachers, for teachers. This is Short Films Teachers Love, with your host, Richard Lee. I teach at uh, Mott Community College in Flint, Michigan, and um, uh, in in the United States, uh, community colleges are um, two-year schools that basically do the first two years of university education, um, first two years of a bachelor's degree, or a two-year degree in an occupational field uh, directly into the workforce, Mm -hmm. so uh, uh, technical education, things like that. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Now, I've, I've never officially taught history myself, but I remember uh, one time discussing short films with the head of our state history teachers' association, and I showed them what I thought was a great, you know, evocative, dramatic fiction about a, an ex-soldier and his reflections on the futility of war and this sort of thing. And they said, well, that's very nice, but is it accurate? And I think that time I, I learnt that accuracy is a really important thing for history teachers and and what I had come to, you know, think about short films was always in the context of teaching English or media or filmmaking rather than history Mm -hmm. and there's this big emphasis on trying to understand historical accuracy but also on using artefacts and objects and primary sources. So tell me about the teaching of history and and this particular way that history teachers approach teaching and, and the use of short films.
1: Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's a it's it's a it's a big question, and especially you know once you're beyond the, the sort of secondary school into into college or university history, there's more of a focus on um, understanding understanding how historians create the the you know accurate narrative that shows up in history books or in documentaries, and and they do that through primary sources, and a short film about a soldier might not be entirely accurate, or it's probably accurate, but it might not be thorough or comprehensive because it's one person's point of view. But that one person's point of view can show a slice of an event such as a war that a, uh, a, a big sort of global narrative wouldn't. And there's also, depending on on how deeply you want to get into these things, there's a, there, there's a value in students' understanding that part of part of comprehending history and part of analyzing history is understanding the viewpoint of those who create historical narratives. So somebody produces or writes a film, they, uh, they have a particular viewpoint. They have a particular agenda. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but everybody has a sort of agenda for what they want that, uh, that, that examination to accomplish. So there's multiple lenses through which students can examine, um, well anything really that uh, that has to do with history, and uh, as I tell my students, the great thing about history is absolutely everything has a history, so no matter what you're interested in, you can find something in history that that you can you can if not get passionate about at least cope with well enough to get through the term
2: mm. what's in- really interesting about the films that you're finding that we'll, we'll get on to talk about is is that they are actually primary sources in themselves. You know, they're, yes. they're not just something to an idea about what history was like. They were actually made at that period of time and are just as relevant as yes. a as a postcard or a letter from that time. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah. Um these these films, the ones I discuss in the book, uh are generally um dating from around the nineteen thirties. There's a few earlier, but from around the nineteen thirties to a about the 1970s, after which there was less of an emphasis on using film in the classroom or anywhere else, a lot of the sto- a lot of the films, were made by the uh, the U.S. federal government um, or by corporations, um, sometimes with funding by the U.S. government, especially during wartime. As we get into the 1950s, there's an increasing number of, of short films around 10 minutes long that are aimed specifically at the classroom, particularly uh, primary and secondary school. Uh, and, and one of the sort of practical reasons why this happened was that um, government psychologists during wartime uh, did studies that that supposedly said that film is the optimal way to reach a large number of students effectively. And um, after the war, there were a whole bunch of 16 millimeter film projectors that were given to schools around the country as military surplus because the military didn't need them for training purposes anymore. <laughs> right. So there was a low cost of entry for these uh, for these schools and companies that had made a lot of money during the war producing films for the government suddenly needed a new a new market, and schools ended up being that market. So these films, they were shown in the classroom. They were shown um, to the general public on television stations. Television stations in the 50s were brand new. They needed cheap or free programming to fill up their schedules. So these short informational films, sometimes sponsored by corporations, um, provided a way – for to inform the public about important issues, or to sell them, you know, weed killer for their gardens or whatever, and uh, as, as well as uh, as as well as inform. So, they come from a variety of places. They're they're from textbook publishers. They're from the government. They're from corporations trying to make a sale. They're from. Uh, Nonprofit organizations that are pushing a particular political agenda uh, as well. So there's a huge variety and and the great thing about them sort of collectively is from the 30s through the 70s, whatever topic I'm discussing – if I have time, I can pull one of these 10-minute long films, and, uh, and the students usually respond to them pretty well. If you pick ones that aren't really boring, uh, you, can, you can get some good discussion going.
2: Yeah. And you can find them, in there and they're nice and easy to find. I think one of the things I love about these is they're in the public domain. So, uh, yes. finding the films, yes. we, we've got the, the Prelinger archives, um, yes. but, but also you mentioned the NLM collection. Are they also online?
1: Yeah, it's the the National Library of Medicine, which was uh, part of the I'm not entire National Institutes of Health, I believe, uh, under the U.S. government, and they did lots of public health films during the 1930s and 40s, and those are all online. Uh, the The Prolinger collection from uh, that Rick Prelinger donated to the uh, the U.S. Um, Library of Congress. About six thousand of those films are hosted at archive.org. So people can go there and um and, and sort of click through and find it and and search by by decade and topic and all sorts of things. And uh, they're really, really easy to find nowadays.
2: It's, it's amazing and there's so many. It's such a rich resource. And um as I say, you know, I think it's it's great. They even encourage you to download them. Like this is right. you know, like no other teaching resource. It's free and it's out there and away you go. Yep. Brilliant. Yes. Let's let's talk about um, some of these films, and I, and I want to start with this one called, I've called it Oil Companies and Competition, but it's not. It's called Destination
1: Earth. Destination Attention! Earth. Yes. Attention!
2: In this cartoon, we meet the authoritarian dictator of Mars, Og the Great. Og sends off an explorer to planet Earth. We pick up the story where the explorer, Colonel Cosmic, is delivering his detailed report about the apparent wonders of human progress on Earth, where he's talking about automobiles.
0: I had landed close to what seemed to be an endless procession of state limousines. They moved quickly, and yet with fantastic smoothness. I just had to get a closer look at one of those Earth mobiles. Just as I thought, not only smooth and efficient,
1: but powerful as well. Students can watch this and they can see that there are many layers to this. There's the layer of, haha, funny cartoon. There's the layer of, well, this is an ideological piece, you know, contrasting American Western style capitalism and, uh, and and free markets to Soviet style planned economies. And then there's also the the little piece that that sometimes escapes students' notice, which is the whole um, the whole topic of sponsorship. Who pays for these things to be made? And in this case, it's uh, it's a trade organization that represents uh, represents oil companies. So what what the oil companies are doing in Destination Earth is really sort of equating the oil industry with capitalism and America. Almost trying to make them inseparable, so you can't have capitalism without oil, and you can't have oil without capitalism, and without either of these things, we're all living in Mr. Og's world of no products on the shelves and nowhere to eat, and everybody's unhappy. So there's there's little layers to uh, to drill drill down, and it's a it's a fun little cartoon.
2: It's great. It's actually it's really well produced, and in fact, I showed my kids, and they said, oh, that's like the Jetsons, but the Jetsons didn't come until like the 60s or 70s. So it was, 60s. Yeah, so it was it was very uh, it was very ahead of its time in a way. The idea yeah. of of a futuristic sort of or a, you know time space travel in in that way uh, was a clever little device for them to use. You know.
1: Yeah, it's it's attention grabbing. Um, it it easily looks like something that they'd put on between te- in the gap between television shows. You know, during the afternoon when uh, you know, or in the evening even. You know, we got five minutes or ten minutes until the next show starts so throw on one of these cartoons the the oil industry is willing to let you show it for free because it's basically an advertisement when really they should be paying you but um it's uh it's something that you can imagine kids enjoying and and adults saying oh yeah that's right the oil industry they're they're okay they're swell guys so it's um it's a pretty uh pretty useful useful piece definitely
2: So, have you seen? You know, have you had responses from students and, and seen the way they react to this film?
1: Yeah, I um I just got done showing a few in my uh my modern U.S. history course uh, this week and on Monday actually, and um it was it was really interesting. I had students talk who usually don't talk in class, which is always nice to see. Um, students picked up on things that. I didn't necessarily pick up on. Um, do you notice the sails in the boat were red, white, and blue? You know, it's like I, I did not. No. But that's <laughs> that's a that's a good thing. And and we talk about who produced the film and and what the what the message might have been. And and what I do is I, I show something, one of these films, and I say, okay, sum up in one sentence what you think the point of this was. So if you take away one thing, what what were the creators of this and the funders of this trying to do. I'm actually trying a, a sort of essay assignment for the end of the term um, with this class where they're to go out and find one of these films from the late 40s to the early 70s. They are going to um, watch it and then write a little essay, three or four pages, where they explain, you know, using what they can glean about who produced it, who paid for it, and and everything, what the audience was, and how it fits into the context of the Cold War. So um, they do re- they do respond to them uh, to them pretty well. And after seeing a few, they start to pick up uh, they start to pick up things more on their own, and and, and need less guidance, mm,
2: which is exactly what you want. Fantastic. Let's let's look at uh, another one that is is a lot more talky. So the the one called Brink of Disaster. On a university campus at night during some student riots, we see a young man, John, entering the library through a window. While Johnny is sitting down to study, he's visited by one of his ancestors from 300 years ago, who delivers a bit of timely commentary on the decline of society. After this conversation, they're joined by John's history lecturer.
0: Sure. but the single, all-out, deadly purpose is the destruction of this country. See, our enemies, headed and masterminded by worldwide communists, they found out that they can't destroy us from without until first they weaken us from within. And John, they think they can do it.
2: From a filmic point of view, it's it's like a it's like a long lecture in, in many ways. Yes, um,
1: it is. That's the best way to say it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but it's it's a thinly veiled opportunity for a lecture. Two older older generation blokes lecturing a younger bloke about why the world is is heading in the you know in a disastrous direction. But I think what what really struck me from the start, and and again, it's this opportunity we have to see something in a different context and it suddenly highlights how it's different now. And, and that's the open connection between the religious and the political language.
0: Internal decay. The breakdown of moral, ethical and religious principles. That's what I tried to tell him. The ragtags have to deny God because as long as people believe in God and his laws of decency, then they won't go along with what these lowlives want to do.
2: Regardless of where you sit on those on those topics, the fact that all that language is being used about, you know, respect for God and, you know, in the same breath as, you know, this is the way the world is, is just not something you would do today. Tell me about how you came across this and, and why it's of interest to you.
1: Brink of Disaster is great because um there's a a Vietnam veteran returning return from Vietnam he's at university he's in the library there's a campus riot going on there's a mob that's going to burn the library Suddenly, he gets a vision of one of his ancestors from the American War for Independence, who is upset about all of these all of these young hooligans. I think he actually says these young hooligans uh, compares them to Native Americans on the warpath. So there's a huge amount of cringiness yes. when you, you sort of have to prep students. Okay, n- there's some of the stuff that just just isn't. <laughs> this is. I'm not endorsing this this, uh, this point of view, but um, you know what's wrong with American kids today? Because they've abandoned all the things that has made this country great. Um, they've abandoned faith in God. They've abandoned this. They've abandoned that. And uh, w- what ends up happening is it ends on sort of a cliffhanger as uh, as as Johnny, who may actually be one of the mob, uh, who's undercover because he's got a whole organization behind him. There's a history professor who shows up and starts really lecturing about how america got to where it is uh, down uh, puts down a lot of organizations like students for a democratic society i think he calls them students for a dirty society or something like that and um and and you're right it's uh it's it really does bring um this uh this notion of you could say religion i would be specific and say what sort of American historians call American civil religion, Um, it talks about God. Which God? Well, we're vague, but everybody can sort of assume we mean um, the uh, the Judeo-Christian God. And interestingly, Judeo-Christian was a phrase invented in the 1950s as a way to promote this godly society in the face of atheistic communism but not exclude america's jewish population so so they they sort of create this this phrase emerges judeo-christian and it's basically the old testament plus more love i, I guess <laughs> is sort of the, the, the way yeah. I, would, uh, I would i would i would just theologically you know judeo-christian i've got some Real issues with that that term. You can get into some deep water there. But uh, what's interesting about this film, and the reason why it is like it is, is that it was created by a um, a uh, an organization called um, called the National Education Project, which was run out of a Christian college called Harding College in Arkansas. And the people behind this organization had been working for. 30 years at this point, promoting their vision. And it was very much a right of center, uh, conservative, pro-capitalism vision of what America should be. They made dozens and dozens of films. And what's interesting about Brink of Disaster is that it's sort of set at this sort of high watermark of campus crisis and opposition to the Vietnam War and societal collapse, but it was made... It, so something that would have taken place in 1968, it's made in 1972. By which time there's really no more hippies. Um, the Vietnam War is is winding down. We're we're getting ready to have Nixon and Watergate happen. It, it's very much. It's like they got an idea for a film in 1968 about hippies, but didn't get it done until 1972 (laughs) so one of the things i like to do is is have students watch it then have them guess what year it was made and they assume it's a a, it's a 60s thing no it's it's the 70s um it's reacting to you know the aftermath of all this uh that company uh or that outfit the national education program they made another film that you can find on archive.org called perversion for profit which is from i think 64 or 65. And, uh, it, it, sort of goes after, um, goes after the, uh, the pornography industry, which, uh, which has existed about as long as humans, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> but, uh, they, they sort of look at the pornography industry and interestingly, they connected all to communism. Yes. It, it, it's all communism, which, <laughs> you know, being a, a child of, you know, I was in high school when the Cold War ended, and, and so I, I sort of was there for the the switch over to the post-Cold War world. It really undermines your message about pornography and sexual exploitation if you just blame the communists for everything. Yes. Um, and Perversion for Profit's a good example of how you got to be really careful about what films you choose to show in the classroom, because... You know, when I first saw it, I was like, ha this would be awesome. You know, students will get a kick out of this because what's considered pornography in 1965 is basically, you know, I wouldn't say children's programming today. But, <laughs> you know, I, that's what I, I thought. So I watched this film, and I'm glad I did because it, it's not appropriate for the classroom. I, I would get complaints. I would I – would, my, my dean would call me up and say, Gullius, what? <laughs> what are you doing in your classroom? What are you showing? Yeah, You're yeah. showing porn. It's like I'm not showing porn. So, it's you know, you got to be careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to be careful. Yeah, Public yeah. health films are very dangerous. Um what looks like a nice juicy piece of film about uh about um about syphilis or venereal disease uh that w- is really actually really good for talking about, you know, sexual politics and gender politics and and how how sex education was was delivered to high school students in in the 50s and 60s if you aren't careful it goes to the next scene and it's got you know graphic graphic depictions of people with syphilis so you got to be really careful watch these things all the way through yes,
2: yes. <laughs> so just just while we while we're going through these films let's let's talk about the the third one that you've recommended that's called a challenge to democracy the opening credits for this short from 1944 says it's produced by the war relocation authority the black and white footage opens with a train load of people it continues in a very straight style, where moving images match the narration. Evacuation. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places.
1: I chose this one because um, it's... It's difficult to talk about the internment of, of Japanese Americans, most of whom were were citizens born in the United States. Um, that that these people were were rounded up and, and shipped off to to internment centers simply because um, the, the the president and, and some others in his administration felt that there was a sabotage espionage danger uh, during World War II. It's difficult to talk about it without and have students. See all sides of it because, sort of naturally, humanly, twenty in a in twenty first century sense, um, it, it's you know it, it's hard to say. Well, let's look at both sides of rounding up innocent people and making them live in a shack for a few years. Uh, it, it's it's difficult to do that. And um, what challenge to democracy does is it sort of shows life in the internment camps. And, um, as my students said the other week when we saw it, it's very sanitized. It's these, these are clean camps. They're nice. They're fun. Boys get to join the scouts. Um, when you get old enough, you, you volunteer to go fight on behalf of the country that took your family away and put (laughs) them in a camp. Um, and they're all happy to do it. Um, but what it also does and it's in 44 so it's near the end of the war what it also does is it makes very clear that the at least the people making the film recognize that they they recognize that this is a bad thing this is not good this is not american we're doing this to preserve the american way of life for everybody But for these people in this moment, this is terrible. I might be hearing things, but it sounds like we don't believe this is a good idea. But we were ordered to do it. We have to take precautions. It's very vague. And when you look at the background to internment, a lot of the documentation, the reports, what's clear is that there were many people in the War Department telling President Roosevelt, we don't need to do this. There is not a threat from Japanese Americans. There really isn't. If anything, this might make them less sympathetic to the war effort. So we really recommend not doing this. I, I, agent said, "I've spent time infiltrating these communities, and they are patriotic. They support America. They came to they left Japan for a reason. You know, they they aren't supporting the emperor. Um, so that this film sort of walks a very fine line, and it's a real contrast. There were some earlier films that were just." Like before, like when it was well, internment was just starting in early '42, where it's it's you can tell it's fake. It's just straight up propaganda. They show a crowd of smiling Japanese Americans, and the narrator says, "These happy Japanese are, are thrilled to be helping their country. their adopted country." And I'm I'm yelling at the screen, "They were born here. It's not an adopted country." Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. if I had time in my class classrooms, I have to get through. The entire 20th century in 15 weeks. So I don't have a lot of time, but I would love to have time to show those two sort of back to back and have students compare the approaches. Um, that would be a, a really useful thing, and and in like an online class that would be much easier to do. Mm.
2: How much do you spend your time in classroom thinking, reflecting on that was how it was then? this is and comparing that with this is how it is now or or is history try to contain itself to to the past
1: I try to contain it to the past um just because it's so it's so difficult to get students to to look at things more deeply than just a compare than than just a weren't weren't wasn't everybody stupid back then yes or wasn't everybody why, why why were why was everybody a racist back in you know 1944 I try to get away from from what we can call sort of historical chauvinism um, we are not necessarily better because this is the 21st century and, and and that was the 1950s we are different and our grandchildren are going to see the media we create and be shocked and appalled at at the the biases and viewpoints that are that will no longer be acceptable in in 30 years, our job is to understand the past as it was. We can't completely divorce ourselves from our own viewpoint because there, there's no way to do that. You can't be completely objective about things, but you can look at things within their own context, and emphasizing that helps reinforce, so what's the context of this? What's going on in the war? Why are we doing the internment of the Japanese Americans? Why is everybody sort of harping on capitalism as being, being crucial and valuable? What's going on geopolitically? What's going on politically within the country? The films or other historical documents need to explain the history of the time but they also need to reinforce the importance of understanding the history of that time of especially at an introductory level like i teach of understanding the sequence of events um because especially as we get into the 70s and 80s things that i grew up with you you cannot take for granted that students born in in 1997, have any idea what this what anything's about? Yeah, for sure.
2: Let's talk a little bit about your book. And part of the reason of you thinking about using newsreels and public service shorts was because that was how some of history was taught to you. Um, is, is that is that right?
1: Yeah, I had a, a history professor where I uh, when I was an undergrad who um, who when we were doing the Cold War pulled out a videotape of. Um, um, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the uh, TV show from the 90s, where um, there's a guy and his little robot friends who make fun of bad movies and they would, you know, provide funny commentary on. On some of these educational shorts as well. And I'd never seen anything like that. And uh, then when I was in graduate school, I was a teaching assistant and the professor I was working for showed a uh, a documentary from the early 80s called the Atomic Cafe, which um, was entirely made of clips of government films and newsreels and, and other video sources from the time. Uh, combined with music from the time, to uh, to sort of give students an idea of what the early Cold War was like. But it does it in a very sort of anti-nuclear, anti-war, depending on your point of view, anti-American uh, in a, in a broad sense sort of way. Which is which is fine. But when students are exposed to a documentary made up of this footage, uh, it's hard for them to separate their interpretation of what the films are saying and what the documentary maker wants them to think about what they're seeing. Um, so I, you know, I, I saw that as a student. I saw it as somebody who was training to teach introductory uh, history classes at the college level. So uh, I was, you know, from the very beginning, I, I tried to work these things, uh, these things into my teaching.
2: Mm-hmm. Such a, a rich, rich vein of, of teaching resource, isn't it? There's, uh, there's lots of things we could talk about, but um, I just wanted to offer any other notes that you might have made, things that you wanted to, to talk about um, before we wrap it up.
1: Um, I urge people to go watch a bunch of this stuff. it's It's fun. It's fun to make fun of. and for for my my fellow teachers out there, it's a new and different way to engage your students with the past. Um, it's a way to get, especially for for younger students, a way to get them involved in studying historical documents and primary sources even if they might not have, um, might not have the reading skills to cope with, you know, a lengthy, you know, newspaper article about the dangers of juvenile delinquency. Um, and it allows, I think, especially for for high school students, this was aimed at you, kids. This is, if you were sitting where you are now, 60 years ago, this is how they would have tried to tell you not to vandalize buildings. Um, It's a a pretty low learning curve to get into using these. They're short. Try one. If it bombs, you don't have to try it again. But um, it it can be uh, sort of another another tool in the toolbox
2: mm. well it's a uh, it's a great resource and your book I highly recommend teaching history with news reels and public service shorts it's obviously uh, had a, a lot of time spent on it you've done a lot of watching and a lot of recommending and a lot of thinking yes. about how, how this stuff can be used so um, thank you for your work and um, I wish you all the best with um, getting it out there
1: absolutely thank you very much
2: Find all the film links and related notes in the description and look out for the edited highlights of this discussion on YouTube. This show is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. To learn more, visit edupodcastnetwork.com.